Okay, good evening, and welcome to the public lecture series. Thank you all so much for coming out on this um, colder-than-I-was-expecting night. Um, thanks for coming out for tonight's lecture. My name is Sam Wong, and I'm chair of the Public Lectures Committee, and I'm also on the faculty in neuroscience here at the university. Uh, before I begin, I would like to ask you to please set your cell phones and pagers to silent mode so that you can have your own private cell phone and pager moments. Um, just so everyone knows, uh, when the room fills, which is just about to fill, uh, we said that we were going to simulcast in room 10 of Makash, but in fact we're going to be simulcasting in rooms 46 and 28, and the security people outside know this. Um, it occurs to me that I don't need to tell you all here because you're sitting here. But, um, and of course, it's all simulcast on local cable and is also archived on our website, which is lectures.princeton.edu. Tonight's lecture is part of the J. Edward Farnham Lecture Series, which was founded in 1939 by a bequest of George L. Farnham of the class of 1894 in memory of his brother, J. Edward Farnham of the class of 1890. Farnham, who died in 1917, was an explorer for whom strange people and customs held a fascination. According to the Alumni Weekly, in 1897, he traveled from Peking to Vladivostok, 700 miles of which had never before been traversed by a European. The purpose of the Farnham Lectures is to provide lectures from time to time by men and women of prominence not connected with the university. The topics addressed by lecturers often speak to us even today, and past lecturers have included John Gilgood speaking on readings from Shakespeare, Isaiah Berlin on Demestra and the origins of fascism, and Eleanor Holmes Norton on the new equality. Tonight's speaker is Ruth Reichel. Ms. Reichel is so well known as to defy introduction. Suffice it to say that she is one of the most eminent food writers and memoirists of our time, a Samuel Pepys of food. But let me stick with just a few known facts. Ruth Reichel is a native New Yorker and was educated there in Montreal and in Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan, where she earned a master's degree in art history. She's written restaurant criticism for New West Magazine, the Los Angeles Times, where she was editor of food, the food section, and the New York Times. Since 1999, she's been editor-in-chief of Gourmet Magazine. She lives in New York with her husband, Michael Singer, and her son, Nick. She has won two James Beard Awards for criticism and one for journalism. She's also won several awards from the Association of American Food Journalists. Finally, a careful search of the Farnham Lecture Archives reveals that of all the lectures in this series going back to 1939, Ms. Reichel has by far the most fabulous hair. Her, her, her volumes of memoirs, Tender at the Bone, Come for Me with Apples and Garlic and Sapphires, are intimate and inclusive. And I will announce that uh, the last one is, in fact, now under development uh, and soon to become a movie. Maybe not too soon, but going to become a movie. Uh, her memoirs, like those of Peeps, come with recipes. Uh, so, and in fact, afterwards, we can perhaps ask Nick whether he really likes the matzo brai and ask Michael whether he really liked that giant chocolate cake. Despite every professional qualification to become a food snob, she's written a flattering review of a California taco restaurant called Senor Fish, and at the New York Times, she once gave a noodle restaurant three stars. This reminds us that at the beginning, back in the day, she cooked at and co-owned the Swallow restaurant and fed a Berkeley commune. Her job now as editor-in-chief of Gourmet and the publication of the Gourmet Cookbook makes her the most influential mass-market media dispenser of recipes in the country. In addition to her work at Gourmet and her recent book, Garlic and Sapphires. Last year, she also edited History in a Glass, 60 Years of Wine Writing from Gourmet. And it will come to you as no surprise that this year she has a new honor. Adweek Magazine has named her their Editor of the Year. 
On top of all this, we found out that she's really up for anything. This afternoon on campus, she taught a seminar on campus on farm to fork, after which we rushed her off to a Trenton establishment called DiLorenzo's Tomato Pies. And considering the size of our posse, there was some question about getting in time, getting back in time, but we made it more or less intact. Viva La Reichel. Well, as you all know, I'm not an academic, and giving lectures doesn't fall naturally into my line of work. But every once in a while, I find myself intrigued by some really big question. And I know that, journalist that I am, I desperately need a deadline to make me sit down and study. And that's the reason for this talk. This particular question concerns the way food looks. Given my profession, you won't be surprised to learn that I've spent most of my life looking at food a lot more intently than most people. As a restaurant critic, I'd study each plate, trying to memorize it so I could translate it for my readers. I'd examine the colors. Was that saffron or golden? And the shapes, trying to file each detail away so I could call it up later when I was sitting at my desk. When I became a food editor, I spent even more time looking, thinking about the way food looks. We all, of course, eat with our eyes. But you edit an Epicurean magazine knowing that this is literally the way your readers are going to consume your creation. Still, it wasn't until I moved into the realm of television that I really began to understand the serious implications of the way food looks. My first inkling came when I was working with two scriptwriters at HBO, trying to make a television show out of my books. The writers had very different ideas about food than I did, which made me think about the subject in a whole new way. Our notions of what to put on the character's plate were so at odds that at one point, one of the writers said crossly, oh, nobody's ever going to be eating this food. What does it matter what it looks like? And I heard myself saying, what it looks like is really important. This audience is never going to taste it. All they can do is look. And this food means something. And then to make my point stronger, I quoted, a bit pretentiously, I'll admit, Claude Levi-Strauss, who has spent a fair amount of time writing about the way cooking transforms nature into culture. He called gastronomy a language in which each society codes messages which allow it to signify a part, at least, of what it is. What I said to my co-writer is this. Any history of gastronomy can tell you that much of that language is visual. How a society presents its food is enormously important. Neither of the writers bought my argument, and I wasn't surprised when our project went nowhere. The final fight was over the life and death of a turkey. They thought that the Ruth character would be much more sympathetic if she bought a live turkey for Thanksgiving and then commuted his sentence and let him live. <laughs> My feeling was that any food writer who isn't clear about meat-eating issues is an idiot. <laughs> over this conflict, we parted ways. 
Ironically, the death of an animal also became a major issue in my next television project. In one episode of Gourmet's Diary of a Foodie, Fergus Henderson, a wonderful chef in London, cooks a pig's head. He simply cuts it in half from forehead to chin and boils it. He then sets a heap of vegetables onto a plate and gently lays the head upon it, saying, here's a little pillow for the pig. Now, whoops. Um, let's see. So there it is. And um, I don't have the picture here, but the next shot is of the reporter taking a knife and cutting into that. Well, you can't imagine the fireworks that this set off at public television. Could we actually show this? It is, after all, a pig's head, undisguised, sitting on a plate. He even seems to be sort of smiling, which, according to the pe people at public television, made things worse. As we were arguing, I found myself saying, what's the difference between this and a slice of ham? They're both pieces of dead pigs. And Lori, my wonderful co-producer, said gently, yes, but here you are actually seeing the animal in its natural form. And I said, so it's all about the way it looks? And she replied, of course. There I was, once again, faced with the issue. In reality television, you can show someone cooking meat so long as it doesn't actually look like an animal. In fictional television, a character cannot be likable if she knowingly consumes a creature she has seen before its death. If you believe, as I do, that food reflects who we are, that you can find in it a microcosm of what is shaping the world at any particular time, you have to wonder what this says about us. We live in a society that consumes more meat than any other group in the history of humanity. Global livestock grazing and feed production now use 30% of the surface of the planet. There are currently 3 billion domesticated cattle, sheep, and goats in the world. And that doesn't include the 100 million pigs or the 9 billion chickens that are dispatched every year in the United States alone. Every one of these animals is destined for someone's plate. What I want to ask today is what it means when a society that devours animals at such an extraordinary rate can only do so when those animals are transformed into something utterly unrecognizable as living creatures. What does this tell us about ourselves? I think the answers will surprise you. They surprised me. I began by looking at meat-eating societies, and I took a very big bite of the world. I went searching across both time and space starting in the 5th century BC in Asia and Europe, and ending up in modern America. In the course of these culinary travels, I sat down to eat with ancient Greek poets and medieval kings and queens. I watched the prophet Muhammad dining in the desert and spied on Dr. Johnson as he took his meal in an old English tavern. Then I looked at what came next. To my astonishment, I discovered that each of these societies would not only dramatically alter its eating habits, but that they would do so in remarkably similar ways. I scrutinized what those who followed after them ate, trying to find out not only how this next society's diet had changed, but why. And then I looked at the next turn of the wheel. 
What I found is that no matter where you may be in the world or at what period in history, you find that eating patterns are repeated over and over again in ways which seem to be independent of time, place, or ethnicity. Let's begin with the serious carnivores. They have been everywhere. Listen to the Greek poet Philoxenus around the year 400 BC as he writes a rapturous note to his lover detailing the menu at a great feast he has just attended. A casserole full of a noble eel. A noble eel. <laughs> With a look of the conjurer about him. Honey-glazed shrimps besides my love. Squid sprinkled with sea salt, baby birds in flaky pastry, and a baked tuna, gods, what a huge one, fresh from the fire and the pan and the carving knife. Enough steaks from its tender belly to delight us both as long as we might care to stay and munch. Archistratus, who lived around the same time, was kind enough to leave us a recipe for preparing whole roasted hare. Bring the meat in and serve it to everyone while they are drinking, hot, simply sprinkled with salt, taking it from the spit while still a little rare. Do not worry if you see the blood seeping from the meat, but eat greedily. 300 years later, the Romans were equally unabashed about eating living creatures. Varro, the great agricultural writer, built an open-air dining retreat by throwing nets around a group of columns. Inside, birds of all sorts were flying about while ducks paddled in a freshwater pond. Pharaoh's guests sat there, watching the birds flying and the ducks floating as they consumed their less fortunate companions. Lucullus, the famously great eater, was so taken with the notion of this ornithon that he copied it, but he couldn't, he couldn't restrain himself from trying to combine business with pleasure. He filled his his pavilion with such enormous numbers of birds so that he could sell the ones that weren't being needed for his own table. The many birds flying about apparently did not keep his guests from eating. It was the odor of their droppings which put them off their feet. The Chinese of the time were equally fond of birds. In one of the poems in the Elegies of Chu, which was written around 300 BC, a departed soul is cajoled into returning home by a recitation of the many earthly delights awaiting it. These enticements include music, pretty girls, ornate palaces, and of course, food. The poet speaks of boiled tur turtle in its soft shell, great roast lambs, whole swans in sour sauce, and fried goose and crane. There was nothing squeamish about this lot. The early Muslims, 500 years or so later, were equally fond of flesh. Mohammed called meat the lordliest food of the peoples of this world and of paradise. He considered eating with a knife a fussy foreign affectation, and he preferred to use his teeth to gnaw the roasted meat from bones. Far from shrinking from seeing the animal in the flesh, Muslims are commanded to sacrifice a lamb during Eid al-Adha. Jump forward another 500 years, and you discover the Europeans of the Middle Ages being equally delighted by the sight of meat on their tables. One of the beloved feast dishes of the period was a cockatrice, the front of a large capon sewn to the back part of a suckling pig. This fantastical beast was stuffed, parboiled, roasted, gilded with an egg glaze, and served in all its glory. 
I couldn't find a picture of a cockatrice. I, I looked really hard. But I do have this picture, which was photographed at the Louvre after a recipe of the same time. This beautifully presented boar's head was the centerpiece of a medieval feast. And I don't know if you can see it. It's, it's beautifully glazed in green. Every truly elegant feast also featured a peacock, which was roasted and then put back into its own feathers to be served. Uh, just imagine how pleased your Thanksgiving guests would be if you served them to turkey in all its feathers. One medieval cookbook even suggests the delightful notion of serving a piece of meat that has been made to look as if it is alive with wriggling worms. This surefire way of delighting your guests was achieved by mincing a piece of raw heart and flinging it on top of a sizzling piece of steak, which made the pieces of heart move about as if they were alive. Mmm, delicious. English gourmets of the time were so eager for flesh that they made things that were not meat look as if they were. One popular feast day dish was dried fruit strung on a cord, dipped in batter, fried, and made to look like haslet, the cooked entrails of wild boar. And these little porcupine pastries also come to us courtesy of the people at the Louvre who recreated it from a medieval recipe. Far from being revolted by the sight of animals, dead or alive, in the dining room, many of our ancestors made a point of putting them there. At various times in history, across many millennia, the favored form of dinner theater was a great display of carcass carving. The Chinese were focused on carving as far back as the fourth century BC, when the Chuang Tzu introduces us to master cook Ting Ti and his extraordinary skill in cutting up oxen. Encountering knotted sinews, Ting Ti says this, alert and cautious, I focus my gaze, work slowly, and move the cleaver very slightly. Zip, the knot dissolves like a clod of earth falling to the ground. Holding my cleaver, I stand there, look all around me, daddling and dawdling, fully satisfied. Then I wipe off the cleaver and put it away. This master butcher is so renowned that he comes up again and again in Chinese texts of the next few centuries, growing more fantastic over time. After the passing of a couple hundred years, he is taking the animals apart with only his spirit as a guide. Called upon to begin carving, he picks up his knife, bows to the audience, and closes his eyes. In medieval Europe, Carving up animals at banquets was considered a major part of the evening's entertainment. The apotheosis of this art arrived in 1581 when Vincenzo Cervio published a book called The Carver. He describes the carver coming among the guests, taking a bow, and amazing everyone as he skewers whole birds and entire roasts, holding them high in the air on long forks. Then he picks up a knife, often a jeweled one, in the opposite hand, and slices with such amazing precision that the pieces fall rapidly onto the plates in elegant heaps. This is an acrobatic performance. Sometimes the carvers actually cut up three or four birds at a single swoop. Others carve with not one but two knives at the same time. The ideal carver, according to Servio, was graceful, elegant, and handsome. 
Reading the book, you come away with the image of a Food Network star of the 16th century. You can imagine that things had, had not things changed, there would now be shows with names like Top Carver and Iron Knife, featuring huge carcasses getting cut up in ever more imaginative fashion. <coughs> but it's hard to imagine anything on modern television trumping the entertainment dreamed up by Robert May, the author of The Accomplished Cook. This came at the very end of the Middle Ages. <coughs> the book opens with a chapter entitled Triumphs and Trophies in Cookery to be Used at Festival Times. May's idea of the perfect meal opens with a tableau of ships and castles made of pastry, each equipped with toy guns filled with real gunpowder. A deer stands in front of the castle filled with wine. An arrow pierces his side. May envisions the guests as they come into the room. Order it so that some of the ladies may be persuaded to pluck the arrow out of the stag. What happens? The claret will run like blood running out of a wound. So appetizing. Then the guns on the ship in the castle all go off at once, and a mock battle begins. The gunpowder, of course, doesn't smell so wonderful. So the host has obligingly provided eggshells filled with perfumed waters for the guests to throw at one another. Then, just when they have settled down and imagine that all danger is over, he supposes that they will desire to see what is in the two large pies nearby. And so they investigate. May is chortling now. Lifting first the lid of one pie, out skips some frogs, which makes the ladies to skip and shriek. Next, the other pie, whence comes out birds, who by a natural instinct, flying at the light, will put out the candles, so that what with the flying birds and the skipping frogs, the one above, the other beneath, will cause much delight and pleasure to the whole company. <laughs> much delight and pleasure indeed. Once the guests have dodged all these living animals, and I couldn't resist this, this is, this is part of the another Louvre recreation. Um, once the guests have dodged all these living animals, they sit down, appetites unimpaired, to dispatch many dead ones. Half a pig's head? Child's play to this crowd. What does it say about these societies that they were all so eager to look, at anim look animals in the face before carving them up and consuming them? Why are they so different than we are? Decoding the answer to this becomes easier when you find out what comes next. Each of these societies, it turns out, was on the brink of drastic change. Throughout history, the very point at which meat-eating becomes most extreme is precisely the point where it comes to an end. People have happily consumed huge haunches of meat, birds in their feathers, and whole roasted fish at many times in the past, but it has never lasted. As far as I can tell, after the time of naked meat, there invariably comes a time when flesh is eaten only when it is profoundly disguised. Consider the Greeks, who were so happily eating their bloody rabbits back in the time of Archistratus. Their world was about to expand, and with it, their appetites. When Aristotle, I'm sorry, this is the only picture of Aristotle I could find, 
um, encouraged his pupil Alexander the Great to take botanists on his journeys of conquest, new foods, including citrus, peaches, pistachios, and peacocks, all entered their menu. It was a kind of very early Colombian exchange. By the second century BC, according to the historian Livy, the taste for exotic foods had grown so pronounced that banquets were becoming increasingly elaborate and extravagant. As a result, he said, the cook gained new status and his service came to be considered an art. By the early first century, food had gained such status in Roman society that Apicius was throwing incredibly elaborate banquets. At a time when the average Roman soldier earned 900 sesterces a year, Apicius routinely spent a million sesterces on a single meal. These banquets included nothing so crass as whole animals or blatant displays of carving. We have hundreds of recipes attributed, rightly or wrongly, to Apicius, and every one of them requires chopping and mixing and the addition of huge quantities of spices. Almost all of the recipes attributed to Apicius include enormous amounts of pepper, a real sign of conspicuous consumption as it had to be imported from India at that time at enormous cost. Apicius liked his pigs fattened on figs, which is where the Italian word for liver, fegato, comes from. He liked his poultry parboiled before cleaning and his mullet delicately suffocated in sauce before it was served. And he liked his food so elaborately prepared that its origins were unrecognizable. Of a recipe for a mousse containing minced fish, eggs, oil, pepper, and roux, pressed into a pan before being steamed, Apicius notes happily, at table, no one will know what he is eating. And that, of course, was the point. In the time of Apicius, the food was always unrecognizable. Nobody wanted to eat anything that looked as if it had once been alive. Among the many recipes that Apicius has left us is this one for what he called patina apiciana. Pieces of cooked womb, of fish, of chicken meat, warblers or cooked thrush breasts, and whatever else is of top quality. Chop all that thoroughly. Mix raw eggs with oil. Crush pepper, lovage, moisten with fish sauce, wine, raisin wine, and set to warm in a saucepan and bind with starch after you have added all the chopped meats and let it come to the boil. When it is cooked, remove with its juices with a spoon and arrange in a serving dish in layers, some with peppercorns, some with pine nuts. Place under each layer as a base a sheet of laganum and put on each sheet one ladleful of the meat mixture, seasoned with pepper. Parse that recipe carefully, and you soon discover that it is, in all probability, the first known recipe for lasagna. <laughs> and I should tell you that last year at Gourmet, this was the single best-selling issue of the year. I regret to say that our recipe contained no womb. And what happened to Apicius? Well, poor man, he liked his food so much that when he discovered that his fortune had dwindled to 10 million sesterces, he poisoned himself. He simply couldn't live with the notion that he might someday be unable to dine in the fashion to which he had become accustomed. <coughs> Apicius was merely a product of his time. By the second century, Athenaeus was giving learned dinner parties which were even more elaborate than those of Apicius. 
The banquets that Athenaeus describes are multi-course meals that start off with a selection of small plates. One begins with sea urchins, cubes of smoked fish with capers, small slices of meat, a hyacinth bulb, and some salad greens tossed in a vinegary dressing laced with mustard seed. This was followed by sliced baked fish with wine, olive oil, and seasoning. Then there were slices of duck marinated in vinegar. Then came sliced turnips served in a sauce made of vinegar mixed with raisins and mustard seed. To finish the meal, there was a final course of sweet cakes, nuts, and fruit. When I read this description, it sounded so familiar to me. I kept wondering where I had read something similar. Then, leafing through a new book on kaiseki food, it hit me. Here is the spring menu served today at the Kyoto restaurant Kikunoi. The meal begins with hasun, which is the first course in every classical kaiseki meal, and it is almost a replica of the meal that Athenaeus described with lily bulb petals and sea urchin and vegetables and vinegar. And the course after this is roast duck breast and steamed turnip. And I was just incredibly struck by all this. And then, of course, what is for dessert in the classical kaiseki meal? Sweet cakes, nuts, and fruits. I bring this up not only because I was struck by the similarity of these two menus, which are 2,000 years and half a world apart, but also because of the chef's commentary on the meal. The Kyoto chef says, on serving a dish, I feel a rush of satisfaction if my customers say, wow, that is gorgeous. In other words, what we have here is a cuisine of the eye rather than of the mouth. This is not merely food to eat. This is food to look at, food to watch, food as art. The notion of artistic cuisine, so different than the whole carcasses served at other times, appears over and over again in history. A few centuries after the death of Muhammad, who would apparently eat just about anything except lizards, which he loathed, the food of the Islamic world changed dramatically. The cork moved east first from Mecca to Damascus, and then again to Baghdad, which became the center of the Muslim universe. There, in the ninth, ninth century, a deeply Epicurean tradition developed under Harun al-Rashid, complete with poems of the table. This could not have been more different than the food of Muhammad. Guests who were invited to a banquet were supposed to memorize a famous poem praising a particular dish. As the meal progressed, each guest stood to recite his poem. And as he did, cooks rushed off to pre prepare the dish in the exact manner described in the poem. These were far from simple dishes. One of them was this, which is called naranjia. It's round balls of chopped meat cooked in a highly spiced broth, um, glazed with egg yolks and saf saffron until they turn bright gold and finished with the mixed juices of lemons and bitter oranges. This is the very opposite of those little pastry hedgehogs. This is minced meat, so mi this is meat so minced and spiced and perfumed that it is completely disguised as fruit. And it is certainly a far cry from Muhammad sitting in the desert gnawing on thigh bones a few centuries earlier. The poetry of food also appeared in China 
Now we're going to make a great leap forward to what some have called the most hedonistic time in Chinese history. The 16th century was a period of enormous agricultural prosperity. And it was then, during the late Ming, that an etiquette book called Eight Discourses on the Art of Living from the Studio Where Elegance is Valued was published. The author divided his book into eight sections, one of which was entirely devoted to food and drink. I imagine him as a sort of literary Martha Stewart. One contemporary scholar points out that by making food and drink an object of connoisseurship, Gao Lin made it possible for anyone who could read to attain a level of cultural sophistication. Gastronomy, she said, allowed a blurring of the boundaries through commoditization, and it bore little relation to eating to satisfy hunger. During this period, literary men who were offered gifts of food responded with poetry. Xu Wei, an artist and poet, offered this in response to a gift of fine bamboo shoots. I made a meal of soup with carp and grain. I rack my brains waiting to respond, but with difficulty. All I can do is cut up a visiting card, sketch bamboo to match your spring dish. Food and art have come together at many points in history, but it is hard to think that they have ever been more lavishly intertwined than at the proxy marriage of Maria de Medici to Henry IV of France. Here was a meal so sumptuous that starting a month beforehand, all poultry, game birds, eggs, and other supplies were banned from sale at the public market in case they might be needed for the feast. But despite its lavishness, this feast had nothing to do with food as sustenance. In fact, most of the people who attended were ne never ate at all. Most of them simply watched the meal unfold. It began with a selection of 30 cold dishes, including tarts, which were made to look like cranes, boars, and dragons. Slices of prosciutto were formed into roosters crowing before castles of salami. <laughs> Next, there was a hot service of 18 dishes surrounded by huge, classically inspired sugar sculptures. And if you've ever seen this equestrian statue of King Henry on the horse on Paris's Pont Neuf, this is merely a replica of a sugar statue from the wedding. Maria de' Medici later had it copied in bronze. With the third course, there was a tremendous rumbling of drums. Trees, plants, and statues disappeared by means of a hidden mechanism to be replaced by billowing clouds and jeweled chariots which descended, bearing, bearing singers dressed as goddesses. Then they rose back up into the heavens. The lights came on, and the next course, a delicate digestivo of jellied quinces, olives, fish in wine, eggs, artichokes, and both fresh and candied fruits, was displayed to the guests. But it still wasn't over. Maria's table began to rotate. At first revolution, the service was transformed into a plane of decorated mirrors. Then it revolved again, and the mirror was replaced by a delicate miniature garden. And with this bucolic scene implanted on their memories, the guests finally departed. This is extreme eating, food that is not intended as sustenance sustenance and has gone far beyond poetry. It is conspicuous consumption on a major scale. Its food is performance art. 
And we have to ask, since we see it happening over and over again in human history, what does it mean when food reaches this stage? When food is transformed beyond all recognition, when it has become art, poetry, and performance, what is it telling us about ourselves? What is it telling us about society? Well, the first message, obviously, is prosperity. Impoverished cultures do not consume food in this fashion. And in times of prosperity, the middle classes invariably begin to move upward. As they do, food becomes one of their major means of displaying wealth. Often, especially in class societies, food is the only avenue open to the newly rich. And as they become wealthier, they begin to eat more lavishly. And what happens? Almost invariably, the old guard becomes terrified. In their attempt to keep these uppity new rich in their places, they enact sumptuary laws. Let's go back and look at what happened in Rome after Alexander the Great introduced all those exotic new foods and Apicius began collecting those elaborate recipes. Well, during the second and first centuries BC, the Senate not only put limits on the number of participants a person was permitted to invite to a private dinner, but also how much he might spend for such a party. Certain foods were not allowed. Exotic creatures such as ostriches or parrots imported from Africa. In one case, the Senate even prohibited dormice. During the Middle Ages in Europe, sumptuary laws were enacted each time the populace began to eat well. In 1348, when the Black Death killed off the greater part of the peasant population, workers were suddenly in great demand. They were lured out to work in the fields with promises of food. All at once, peons, who had been forced for generations to subsist on mere rations of grain and hunks of coarse bread, were being offered meat and vegetables. Ordinary people began to eat like the nobility. The rich responded by enacting, enacting sumptuary laws to keep the peasants in their place. The class rules of eating were so stringent that in 1517, England regulated not only what people were allowed to eat, but also how many courses were permitted. A cardinal was allowed nine dishes served at one meal. A duke, archbishop, marquis, or earl, or bishop could have seven. Knights of the Garter, only six. Those with an income of between 40 and 100 pounds a year were allowed three dishes. Clearly, these laws would have been unnecessary had ordinary people lacked the means to eat well. But these laws were never entirely successful. A French law of 1563 forbade private families from having meals of more than three courses, with the number and type of dishes that might constitute each course spelled out in great detail. But no one would behave, and this same law had to be reenacted two years later, and then again in 1567. In fact, the same law was passed and repassed six times in the next 50 years. Why didn't these laws work? Apparently, you can prohibit people from employing cooks, but it's not so easy to regulate how much a family of adequate means will eat. Looking back, it's very clear. When legislation prohibited people from eating elegantly, they simply changed their style. And so, time after time, the ostentation of quality turned into the ostentation of quantity. 
When men moneyed people wanted to show off and they were not permitted to do, do it by the fanciness of their food, they simply eat more. Reading the documents, looking at the pictures, you can virtually see the change. The food loses all its delicate adornment and the portions, whoops, portions become enormous. <clears throat> <clears throat> Let's go back to Rome and those sumptuary laws. In the years that followed, Vitellius, who was briefly emperor, became famous for the sheer size of his gluttony. He got himself invited to dinner at five or six houses every night and ate at all of them. Attending sacrifices, he was sometimes known to throw himself upon the roasting animal and devour it right in the middle of the ceremony. During the 16th and 17th centuries, the time of the great European sumptuary laws, people ate so excessively that even royalty became famous for its prodigious capacity for food. One writer said of Louis XIV, he did not bother himself with cookery nor with any refinements. To him, always afraid of not having enough to eat, sheer quantity was more important than anything else. He didn't eat, he stuffed himself. And this is a, a Louis XIV oyster feast. Looking back a hundred years later, historian Louis-Sébastien Mercier snared, sneered, in the last century, they used to serve huge pieces of meat and pile them in pyramids. Delicate eating has been known for only half a century. But you certainly didn't have to be royal to eat like a pig. Across the channel, Dr. Johnson, that famous trencherman, was far more interested in quantity than taste. He once stopped a servant from removing the gravy boat from the table before dessert. The gravy was meant for lobster but Dr. Johnson grabbed it and poured it over his plum pudding. Taste be damned, couldn't waste good sauce. The consequences of this sort of gluttony were exactly what you might imagine. Time wore on and people ate more and more, almost to absurdity. Sociologist Stephen Minnell puts it this way, by the 17th century, it would have been physically impossible for the nobility to eat quantitatively more than they were. And so what happened next? The obvious. It's not a coincidence that the first cookbook of the modern age showed up during the reign of Louis the 16th, or Louis the 14th. When sheer quantity reaches its limit, the only way to consume more food is to make it more palatable, more enticing, and easier to eat. And so the cooks are called in. Interestingly, it is just about this point in Western history that the manner of serving food, the way the table itself looked, underwent an enormous revolution. At first, forks, which had been known for centuries but were considered an effete affectation throughout most of Europe, became a universal tool. Then the classical style of eating à la française, where everything was placed on the table at the same time, and what happened was wherever you were sitting, you just ate whatever was nearest to you. So there would be, there might be a hundred different thing, dishes on the table, but you just ate whatever happened to be near you. And that was thrown out for the new style, which was called à la russe, which is pretty much the way we eat now, where you're served in courses. So everybody gets everything. This change may not seem so revolutionary, 
But think about it for a moment. It's actually monumental. Imagine that you're a well-bred young woman who has been invited to a Victorian dinner party. You are led into the dining room on the arm of a gentleman. He takes you to your seat, which he identifies because there is a name card propped up on a small roll in front of your place. You sit down, and before you are two large knives, three large forks, a silver knife and fork for fish, as well as a tablespoon for soup. On the right is a wide-rimmed glass for champagne, a small one for sherry, and a colored glass for German white wine. There is a large plate as well as a smaller crescent-shaped one. Your assignment is to use the correct utensil for each course or face social ostracism. Now what do you do? Well, first you sit down, you take off your gloves, you lay them in your lap, and you cover them with your napkin. You then begin by taking the roll, which once held the name card, and moving it to your left. You need to know that the large plate is for meat and the crescent plate for salad, and that you are meant to be using both plates at the same time, alternating between them. You must also be sure to use up every piece of cutlery before dessert, because the dessert spoon and fork will make their appearance with the sweet course. And if you have anything left, you're going to be very embarrassed. Colin Spencer, one of the most delightful food historians, points out that for the inexperienced, all this rigmarole must have been a nervous nightmare. But it was meant to be. Such detailed rules were a secret code to keep hoi polloi at bay, firmly outside the castle walls. Ask yourself if things have really changed. Remember that scene in Pretty Woman where Julia Roberts learns which fork she's supposed to be using when going out to dinner? Spencer, commenting on Victorian manners, says, Britain in the 19th century was an aggressively socially mobile society, and people in fierce competition to gain a place on the next rung of the, of the ladder formed rigid rules and regulations as a method of selection. If this were only about table manners and tableware, it wouldn't concern us. But these new rules of dining were not limited to mere displays of cutlery. They were also accompanied by new food. And how this new food looked became far more important than the way that it tasted. To achieve the right look, says Spencer, flavor was either secondary or entirely ignored. In attempt to be more genteel, the less affluent made dishes that mimicked those eaten by the people in the class above theirs. Open up Isabella Beaton's seminal Victorian cookbook, and you find a whole range of mock dishes meant to look like the real things. There was mock turtle soup, mock crab salad made of grated cheese mixed with chicken, tossed in mustard and salad oil, and piled up in a crab, sal in a crab shell. A boiled salad made from potatoes, celery, Brussels sprouts, and beets was supposed to be lobster salad. Although these dishes play at being seafood of some sort, not one contains anything resembling fish to make it taste like what it's pretending to be. It was all about the way it looked. And it couldn't have been more different than the medieval pastries that resembled meat or the Persian meat fashioned to look like fruit. This offers a convenient segue into our own society. I recently discovered the 1959 edition of the Ford Treasury of Famous 
favorite recipes from famous eating places. Here's the recipe for what was called jade molded salad. One cup of grated cucumber and a quarter cup grated onion mixed into one cup each of cottage cheese, mayonnaise, and whipped cream, and then fold it into lime jello. Now, this was a recipe that is proudly presented by a restaurant. Now, clearly, this is not a dish that anyone would really want to eat. It's not even a dish that's pretending to be anything other than what it is. This is fancy food, a dish that shouts, look at me, I'm so pretty. It is a dish that says that the appearance of food is far more important than the way that it tastes. And it is a sure sign of a shift in society, as sure as any of Mrs. Beaton's mock salads. Because right up to this point, all during the first half of the 20th century, American food was famous for its straightforward qualities. People ate simple and they ate big. Diamond Jim Brady, the mythic American eater, consumed a few gallons of, or gallons of orange juice at every meal. His dinner began with three dozen giant oysters, and they were oysters that measured six inches from tip to tip, followed by a half dozen crabs, six or seven giant lobsters, two portions of terrapin, two entire ducks, and finally steak and vegetables. At the end of the meal, he devoured a few platters of pastry. Restaurateur George Rector called Diamond Jim the best 25 customers I have. <laughs> but Diamond Jim was not an aberration. Writing about the great New York institution known as the Beefsteak, in 1939, Joseph Mitchell sneers, this is the only picture I could find of a beefsteak, Joseph Mitchell sneers that at a contemporary beefsteak, it is unusual for a man to do away with more than six pounds of meat and 30 glasses of beer, noting that until women were allowed in, the men ate considerably more, and they did so without benefit of knives, forks, napkins, or tablecloths. This was clearly not a time for niceties or squeamishness. When Gourmet Magazine came into being two years later, the cover pretty much said it all. And animals, both dead and alive, appeared on the cover for the next few years. I mean, I could no sooner put this on the cover today than I could fly to the moon. <coughs> but much as in the time of Archistratus, Vitellius, Mohammed, and Louis XIV, the America of gargantuan appetites and haunches of meat was not destined to last. When quantity reached its logical extreme, our society turned to the cooks. At first, we made dainty dishes like the aforementioned jade salad. But it was just the beginning, because at this point in history, the industrialization of the food supply made it possible to disguise food in ways that no one of an earlier time could ever have imagined. The dishes that we ate became less and less recognizable as what they started out as. <laughs> as fast food establishments started creating dishes that resembled in no way what they actually were, they also started swaddling their inventions in so many layers that the wrapping became more important than the food. And what is this food? It's created to be so soft that it need barely be chewed in order to make it easier to swallow and therefore enable diners to consume more. And make no mistake, our supersized society is designed to make us eat more. 
Uh, Marion Nessel points out that America produces 3,900 calories per capita, which is twice what we actually need. Our government obligingly creates policy designed to use up the surplus. But the foods, fast food purveyors are not the only ones who have been busily transforming food. The latest elite food movement also uses modern technology to make food look like anything but what it started out as. The great molecular gastronomist Ferran Adria and his disciples like Grant Ackett's would not like to hear it, but they really are just the latest incarnation of a long and honored tradition of cooks. Anne de Montmorency, Constable of France, once pointed out, when a gentleman attains an income of 500 pounds, he no longer knows what it is to eat well, because wishing to eat in the grand style, he is at the mercy of his cook. She said that in 1600, but she might as well be talking today. So what does this all tell us? I have to admit that I started to research this talk with the idea that the industrialization of food had created a climate unlike any the world had ever seen. I was convinced that our squeamish inability to look our food in the eye was a sign of some terrible social dislocation. But wandering through the tables of history, I saw something quite different. We want very much to think of ourselves as having moved beyond our past. But when I look back at what we have eaten, it becomes clear that we are merely taking part in the dance of human history. Look at the contrived dishes that we now eat and think of Apicius, of Harun al-Rashid, of Maria de' Medici, and then think what followed them. Throughout history, each time a society became so prosperous that food was plentiful, the middle classes began to rise. And as they, they did, their food became a means of displaying wealth, and they began to eat more elegantly. Then the ruling classes stepped in and attempted to quash their pretensions. In reaction, the new rich began to stuff themselves, and they kept doing it until it was simply not possible to eat anymore. At that point, the cooks were once again called in to reduce large quantities of food into something smaller. The result was food so decorative that it was unrecognizable as anything that was once alive. Throughout history, great plenty has inevitably turned into great disguise. I think that's what Andy Warhol was trying to tell us when he focused on food that was not food. He wasn't celebrating the soup can or the cereal box. He was simply pointing out this ultimate act of transformation, showing us that we had turned our food into symbols. It is the ultimate act of disguise. So what does this tell the way that we now eat tell us about ourselves? Well, it tells us that we're overfed. We have come to the point of ultimate disguise, the point where the cooks are called in to chop, reduce, and otherwise transform vast quantities of food so that we can consume more calories. But what we have seen throughout history is that this highly decorative food always goes out of style. The end sometimes begin in, begins in satire, as in the Greek satyricon, in which Trimalchio's feast is a long and detailed means of making fun of the nouveau riche. Often the end is abrupt and political. In the Islamic world, when the Umayyads relocated the court from Mecca to Damascus, they were seduced by the elaborate dining of the Persians. This led to their downfall. Ironically, the last of that dynasty was slaughtered during the final course of what had build, been billed as a reconciliation banquet. 
a time of austerity briefly ensued. The lavish Ming dynasty was brought down in similar fashion. Disgusted by the ways of the rich, the peasants rebelled and the Manchus swept down from the north to inaugurate a new and once again brief period of austerity. And we all know what happened to the French monarchy after its eating became too effete. Marie Antoinette said, let them eat cake, and the rest was history. So the next time you notice how contrived the food you are eating has become, remember that this too will undoubtedly pass. Looking back at history, it seems, oops, it seems that the time of the beast cannot be far off. Look for a pig's head on your plate in the very near future. Specialists agreed very kindly to take questions, and I just want to remind people that since we are broadcasting these things, to please raise your hand and someone will come to you with a microphone and to please use the microphone to ask the question. And uh, if it's all right, may I please ask the first question? Sure. Right. So, uh, chair's privilege. So, um, when I look at uh, different things that I can appreciate as a consumer, like uh, food or architecture or literature or music, I think about how different it feels to create something. I mean, in my, in my discipline, it's science. And so how different it feels like to create something as to consume it. So when you were going through all this historical information about food, was there something in your background as a cook, since you cooked first before you began to review, was there something that really struck you as something that really seemed different to you because you're a cook by training, that, that looked different or that you really noticed? I'm not sure I understand your question. I'm well, it's like if you looked at a recipe and you say, you know what, that was really stupid. Or if you say, gosh, I felt that way when I did that procedure or something like that. Well, I mean, I, I guess I would say that um, as, as a food person, when you look at a recipe, you sort of imagine that you can taste it. And for me, one of the fascinating things about looking at these things from history is that a lot of the times... I couldn't taste them because I didn't know the ingredients. So, um, you know, when I'm reading these Apician recipes and there are all these ingredients that are all being mixed up together and I really want to know what they taste like, I can't. And it's very frustrating. Um, so it was sort of the opposite of what normally happens in my life where I, you know, go through a cookbook and go, oh, this sounds great, and I want to taste this, and this is probably like something else I've eaten. And I couldn't do that. And I think that's one reason why this, like reading this um, Kaiseki menu and then looking at this menu from um, Archistratus just sort of blew me away because they were just like going down the lists and seeing the same ingredients just stunned me. Uh, I'd like to know your opinion about the legislation in a lot of states now about food labeling on menus. Um, 
trans fats, saturated fats. You know, every state now has some legislation that's pending or is going to be implemented regarding menu uh, labeling and the amount of calories so that every time you eat something out, you're supposed to actually know what's actually in it. I just wondered if you had an opinion about that. Well, I do, and, and I actually think that, you know, that it, it actually relates to what this is about, which is that we are at a time when what we're eating, so much of it is so disguised, and especially with fast food, that you literally have no way of knowing whether something you're eating has um, is going to shorten your life because it has 100 grams of trans fat in it, or if you know, that innocent-looking muffin that, you know, looks like an ordinary breakfast is actually a calorie bomb and has 2,500 calories in it. And if our food were less contrived, we wouldn't need this. And, um, you know, we are at a point where, in fact, we really do need it. I mean, if, if you went out and you just ate an apple, you wouldn't need to know what was in it. Or if you were just eating a slice of duck, you wouldn't need to know what was in it. But um, when everything has 4,000 different chemicals, some of which may not be good for you, um, I think you need to know, I think you need to know it, and I think that the labeling will, may in fact bring us back to a time of simpler food, which in my opinion would be a good thing. There's someone over here. Okay. Um, have you read uh, Professor Lichtenstein's recent book uh, about the Quran in which he speculates that the delights of Muslim heaven are not sexual but uh, culinary? That the, um, the word hur uh, refers not to a virgin but to white raisins and cool drinks. Well... <laughs> Well, there's actually, I, I, there's, there's a lot in the Quran about rivers of um, wine that does not intoxicate, and uh, it might, in fact, be both. But, I mean, the Quran, the translation that I've read, um, has a lot of amazing promises about fabulous food to come in um, the next world. Um, rivers of honey and incredible... Um, the flesh of fowls and sounds sounds quite wonderful. <laughs> uh, yes. Do you think the uh, the movement to ban foie gras in many states these days is really a reenactment of sumptuary laws to uh, hold down the rich and uh, fabulous? <laughs> um. I don't. Um, <laughs> I, um, I, I do. I think that it's a uh, very convenient way for the um, vegetarian forces to come upon something that's very easy to attack. It's much easier to attack foie gras, which affects a very small percentage of the population, than it is to talk about the horrors of uh, factory farmed pigs 
which uh, affects all of us, or factory farmed um, cattle, or I mean, they, there are there are there are lots of horrors out there in the food world. Most of them much worse than force-fed, you know, a very small population of force-fed ducks. And I just think it's one of those things that they've grabbed onto something that is easy for people to dislike and especially easy for people to dislike because it doesn't affect most of them. I think it's a very clever uh, move on the PETA people's part. Um. Um, in listening to your talk, I can't help but think what you are talking about is really about men's food. I mean, women, I would think in history, throughout history, would eat very differently. And, um, and I just wanted to offer you a little bit of my own experience, um, such as growing up as a little girl in a Chinese family, the best of everything has to go to the men first. And, the, and, and every time I try to pick a particular delectable looking piece of duck, my grandmother would give me such a glare that you know, I would just shrink from eating that. And the other thing, as you were talking about all that conspicuous consumption, what appeared to me is, of course, how little there are uh, uh, in literature of women as great cooks cooking on that kind of a scale as you have described. As a matter of fact, again, offering another experience, um, after giving up a career on Wall Street to open up my own organic chocolate cafe <laughs> and laboring there for the past 18 months, my mother has yet to talk to me. <laughs> I, I just wanted, of course, I admire you enormously, and my mother does not know who you are. <laughs> but uh, My I mother's with your mother, I have to say. <laughs> this is what we sent you to college for? <laughs> I love to hear you talk a little bit about that to your own personal work experience. This issue of gender is fascinating to me. In fact, the Radcliffe Institute is having a um, seminar on food and gender in April um, that's going to address some of these issues. Um, and one of, one of the places I started going with this, I mean, there's so many ways to go with this particular talk, and one of the places I started going with it was there, there's a whole theory about what happens when, um, as with, with the growing wealth of societies, as middle-class women, as their husbands become wealthier and wealthier, the women become appendages, and they, they go from being the helpmeet, especially out in the country in farms, they go from being the people who are helping slaughter the animals, etc., to um, people who, because they have to be conspicuously idle to show off how wealthy their husbands are, um, it's one of the reasons that the food becomes more and more contrived because the women become too delicate. You know, a hundred years earlier they're slaughtering the animals and suddenly they're too delicate 
to be involved in anything like that and the, the food becomes more contrived. So there is a whole study of um, women and um, food and it, it's probably just a beginning um, field, but it's a really fascinating one. Can you talk a little bit about the frequency that you noticed in this pattern throughout history of going from the various types of food that is being eaten through the cycle of kind of a demise into this processed food? And if you saw that speed up as, as, it, as you approached our time? Definitely. Everything speeds up as you approach our time. Um, it's, I, I think it's got, it, it went from being a very slow cycle. I mean, when you're looking at, at the ancient world, it's something that takes hundreds of years, and it gets quicker and quicker as time goes on. There's no question. Um, you know, we're in something that took 400 years. Is, you know, we're now probably down to 40 years. <laughs> I was just wondering, as you were going on this journey of the history of food, if you came across anything at all about the history of dieting, or if it's a very modern phenomenon, because the two seem very conflated much of the time. I have to admit that dieting doesn't interest me so much, so I didn't look at it. I, and I started, because there's a whole health th piece of this that you can do, because food, of course, has always been wrapped up in health, and as you go back in history, you can't avoid it, but I tried to. <laughs> I was wondering if you had any comments on the slow food movement and the various issues that it encompasses, like eating local and terroir and things of that nature? Well, I'm um, thrilled by the slow food movement, and um, I I so believe that one of the things that you know we in this country need to do is start understanding how important growing is, how important our farmers are, um, how important they are to the life of the community, not just be for the food, but you know how one of the real you know the restaurant industry, the the food and hospitality is such a big enterprise in this country, and as um, all of it becomes more industrialized and the money leaves communities, and um, so it's not just farms, but also restaurants, you know, it's, it's, a, it's just a terrible tragedy for every community in this country when um, we're not only, you know, buying our food from farms half a world away, but also um, restaurants used to be one of the great local enterprises, and now suddenly you have you know whole communities that have nothing but chain restaurants. I mean, when um, you're, you can be in um, some mid-sized town in America, and they ask, you know they vote for the best Chinese restaurant in town, and it's P.F. Chang's, and the best Italian restaurant in town is Olive Garden, and um, you know all of that feeds into the need for us to go back to, you know, preserving what is local and um, 
trying to keep the money in the communities and trying to make it possible for um, people to have local farms. And part of the way that we do this is, um, you know, I think the Farm Bill, which is up this year, um, we all think of the Farm Bill as being something that is for farmers. I mean, it's not. It's going to set food policy in this country for the next six years. And um, it's very difficult to understand. I've been trying to. It's it's deliberately made so that you can't understand what it is. But it's, you know, it's worth something like $73 billion in um, subsidies. And um, one of the big things that the slow food people are trying to do is make sure that some of that money goes to small farmers as opposed to um, giant farmers. Um, um, so a lot of us know. Oh, I'm sorry. A lot of us know know you from your work from the Times, mm -hmm. uh, your, your restaurant reviews from the Times. I was wondering if you could say anything about how the work you're doing now relates to to the stuff that you do that uh, that you that you do from the uh, wrote for the Times. Or um, is that is that too? No, I, I'm happy to answer that. Um, I think um, they hired me because my um, reputation at the Times was for democratizing. Um, the restaurant reviews, and I think Gourmet had a, um, a reputation as being elitist, and one of the things they thought would be, oh, we'll get her, and instantly that will knock out the elite, um, <laughs> the elite notion of the magazine. Um, unfortunately, it's not that easy. Um, but, um, you know, in fact, that... That is what we've been trying to do with the magazine, is bring it back down to earth, make it um, relevant to, um, I mean, I felt like when I took over Gourmet, it was, it was geared to, um, you know, people with incomes over a million dollars and um, whose idea of travel was to, you know, call up their travel agents and say, you know, book me on the most, um, the the fanciest uh, cruise you can find, and that our idea was to say, hey, wait a minute, there's this great world out there of amazing food and wonderful travel, and we really need to be thinking about political issues and um, to just bring it down to earth. Oh, how this how this related? Um, I'm not quite sure. I mean, this just it, this was just really something that came out of, for me, the notion of not being able to put a pig's head on TV, and it just sort of I thought, you know, what does that mean? I mean, what does that mean that we eat so much meat and we can't look at it? So it, it wasn't from the reviews. Uh, two comments, or one comment and a question. Uh, it would be interesting to look at the way uh, the, um, the cycle that you described 
correlates with ideas of female beauty, uh, thin or, or, or plump. Uh, which, oh, which it would was, be. Which, which yeah. has changed enormously uh, in the time of Diamond Jim Brady. Uh, uh, woman had to have heft. Right. Uh, um, and um, uh, then the second question I, I've, I've got is the cycle that you describe, is it, um, uh, is it in the top stratum of socioeconomic um, um, uh, population only? Uh, it, it, does it really filter down? I have the idea that the people living on the farm who slaughter the, uh, the, the, the animal for their dinner or, or for the next month's dinner um, will we'll, we'll not mind uh, the, the appearance of the food reminding them of the animal. Maybe I'm wrong in that. I'd be curious to know what you think about well, that. Well, I mean, one of the things that I was talking about earlier um, I mean, one of the things you see in English history is that even out on the farm, as these people got wealthier and wealthier, the women were, got removed from the actual being in the farm, and the food on the table suddenly could not look like the animal that it had once been. Um, at least this is in England. There's a whole study I read of that. Um, I'm not sure that that happened everywhere else. Um, but, um, you know, the other thing is that um, lots of, at various points in history, you know, the people on the farms couldn't eat what they were raising. They weren't allowed to. I just had a question about the title of your talk. When I saw that it was Watch What You Eat, it made me think that we so often do watch vigilantly what we eat. And so I have a question about bioterrorism and this new world that we live in. And I'm wondering if you think that we are more fearful or our control issues are heightened in a new way because of terrorism, or has this been an issue since the jungle was published and we've always really been concerned about food sources? So I was wondering if you had any thoughts well, on that. I, I would say the opposite. I don't think we're concerned enough. I mean, um, we in this country, foolishly, I think, somehow believe that our food supply is safe. And I'm not worried about terrorism from, you know, someone poisoning the food. But, um, you know, the jungle was published. There was a certain reform in the way meat was done. If you read Fast Food Nation, um, it's terrible now. Um, anybody who believes that we're not going to have a mad cow epidemic, I think, is insane. Um, we are, you know, it's perfectly legal to sell rotten fish in this country. Nobody, I mean, um, I, I don't think we're nearly vigilant enough. I mean, I think we're um, remarkably complacent about food safety. And, you know, we're surprised when there are outbreaks of E. coli, but in fact, some extraordinary number of people, um, and I used to know the figure, but it's millions and millions of people, um, are sickened with food poisoning every year in this country. Half the time they don't know that that's, they, they think they've had the flu or some, something, but the CDC numbers on this are um, gigantic. And I don't think we're vigilant. I just think we go to the supermarket and think everything's fine. Two more? Okay. 
Oh, oh, I, I thought she was pointing to somebody else. Um, my my question is, I was at a farm conference uh, recently, and I'm um, over here. Okay. <laughs> I was at a farm conference and heard Michael Abelman speak, and he was speaking about um, American media and how it handles food, and he said, well, he had a question. Why is it that we have a lot of celebrity chefs but no celebrity farmers? Do you want to take a crack at answering that? Oh, yeah. Um, in fact... We do something at Gourmet every year called the Gourmet Institute, where we have um, chefs come in. It's a weekend of chefs cooking and talking and so forth. And this year, uh, Thomas Keller asked if he could bring his lamb purveyor. And when he introduced him, he said, "Um, I think in a couple of years you aren't going to see celebrity chefs anymore. It's going to be celebrity farmers, and that's why I wanted to introduce you to this one. And my sense is that as more and more chefs become businessmen, as we start seeing them as businessmen, as they start, you know, going off and, you know, suddenly they they have 25 restaurants, they're flying around the world, And I think the great romance of the chef is going to go away because there's nothing very romantic about some guy who isn't actually cooking the food but is just the businessman behind the stove. And that we are going to all fall in love with the farmers and cheesemakers and bakers and that those are going to be the people who will replace um, in our hearts because I think we desperately want to be connected to people who are feeding us and the chefs are sort of losing it. And it's going to be, you know, these other artisans and growers who we're all going to fall in love with. I, I would give it two years, maybe. Um, you mentioned the horrors of factory farms, and I was just wondering how you feel personally about eating animals that come from factory farms and lived a horrible life. I don't. I don't eat them, um, if I can possibly help it. Um, I don't buy them. I don't cook with them. Um, I think that um, the confinement animal facilities are the most unethical thing that we do in this society and um, that we should all be terribly ashamed of ourselves. Um, And um, I, I think they're just a horror. And I don't... I don't eat those animals. Thank you. You've been a great audience.